welcome you on behalf of the Center for American Progress and the Heinrich Boll Foundation um, to uh, what is the beginning of a, of a transatlantic dialogue on climate policy and, and solutions to global warming. Um, I think we have a lot to learn from each other uh, as we are in the United States starting to really face in earnest the challenge of putting a price on carbon and establishing uh, carbon markets to, to start the trading. There's a lot of uh, lessons to be learned from the European Union. Um, we also, I think, uh, need to, to dig into some of the misconceptions or some of the, the get a deeper understanding of what's actually been the European experience with creating an effective carbon market and, and building the commitment that they have to implementing climate solutions and, uh, and using, uh, using mechanisms to actually drive down carbon, both regulation and incentives. Um, we also today have an opportunity to talk about the specific solutions of energy efficiency and renewable energy and that inter the, the exchange between building uh, energy security and, uh, and advancing climate security and how climate policy has helped support the growth of renewables markets and how renewables policy has helped to establish uh, a very robust demand for, for clean energy and a much more efficient, energy efficient economy. Um, but while the United States has been very slow to take action on, uh, on reining in our carbon emissions and taking uh, meaningful steps to reduce our, our climate impacts, there is also a great deal, I think, to be learned from the American experience. In the absence of strong federal leadership, uh, there has been a tremendous amount of activity that's gone on at, in state and local government. Uh, in the private sector, uh, through programs that support innovation and leadership in the built environment, in the, in the renewable energy sector. And I think having this conversation about the ways that the United States has pursued uh, a leadership path on, on bringing along those who are ready to take action, and a conversation about how in Europe uh, there has been a very strong commitment to raising the bar. And, and building an economy that produces less carbon overall. I think we have a great deal to learn from each other. And this is an opportunity for real information sharing. Uh, we have uh, some very interesting leaders today from, uh, from the European Parliament, from the Portuguese government, uh, from the U.S. Green Building Council and from the Solar Energy Industry Association to engage in this conversation about renewable energy solutions, clean energy solutions, and how they can support our approach to global warming. Here at the Center for American Progress, this really goes to the heart of what our energy program is about. Uh, we call our work on global warming uh, the Energy Opportunity Program, and it really is at the center of uh, what we believe that building a clean energy economy, building a low carbon economy, and implementing green solutions to economic development can become a major source of innovation and new investment. And that this, in fact, is going to be the leading edge of renewed prosperity, renewed investment in our communities, uh, renewed markets, and renewed opportunities for global competitiveness. And that unless we capture the opportunity of answering the challenge of global warming, we're actually going to be limiting the, uh, the, the productivity and, the, and the, the growth of our economy. Um, it's also, I think, interesting at this moment when there is a debate uh, raging about increasing oil drilling, about increasing exploration of fossil fuels and, and the insecurity around energy prices, um, that 
we can look to clean energy as a source of new investment and a source of growth industries, and that we link that conversation to a very robust discussion of global warming and how we control our carbon emissions. Um, I think there's also an opportunity here to think about how the United States can rejoin the community of nations. I think that thinking about how our solutions to uh, this global crisis um, and our solutions to rebuilding our place in the global economy um, offers a tremendous opportunity to think about American leadership and uh, American uh, citizenship in, in a, a global community. Um, and lastly, we need to pursue these, uh, these solutions if we are going to avoid a very costly global climate crisis. Uh, that's the other side of the energy opportunity, is the missed opportunity if we fail to take action on implementing climate solutions. Um, so I'm going to uh, um, turn over the, uh, the microphone to uh, Helga from the Heinrich Boll Foundation. Um, to just say a few words of welcome. Uh, but before I do, I also just want to recognize that there is a delegation visiting the United States here from Europe. Uh, we have representatives in the audience today from Denmark, from Poland, from the Czech Republic, Germany, the UK, Luxembourg, Portugal, uh, and uh, the European Union. And uh, I hope that we will hear from you as well as we have this conversation and that, and that we will engage truly in, in a larger dialogue during the question and answer period. There's a tremendous wealth of experience here. And, and I think most importantly, um, as we start to talk about you know, issues like green jobs and building our economic competitiveness, we can actually start to learn from the examples of what's happened in Germany, what's happened in Denmark actually building these industries. And in our conversations over the last few days, I, I learned that, uh, for example, in, um, in uh, Germany today, there are, more, uh, there are more people working in the wind industry than there are in nuclear power and mining combined. Uh, and that this is changing the politics. And it's no longer a partisan issue. It's no longer a progressive issue. It's an economic issue. It's a competitiveness issue. It's a security issue. And I think that... Uh, that the reality of their experience uh, can give us great hope as we start to pursue uh, this path of, of limiting our carbon emissions. So thank you again for coming out, and I will now hand over the microphone. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bracken. Uh, I want to welcome you also on behalf of the Heinrich Böll Foundation here. For those of you not familiar with the Heinrich Böll Foundation, we are a German foundation, so this is truly a transatlantic partnership. We are working internationally through 26 offices worldwide, headquartered in Berlin, and really at the core of our mission and our work is the work on climate change and energy, renewable energies. Um, so. Part of what uh, we are doing here today, the event that we are doing here today, is being our main task, so to say, or one of our main areas of work uh, for the office here in Washington. What we have tried to do in the past years is really to promote transatlantic exchange on climate and energy, even at times when it was not that easy to discuss such issues here in Washington, for us it was always important, as Bracken also mentioned, to show also to Europeans that while in Washington maybe things were not moving at all or moving enough, uh, the states, at the state level here in the U.S., there's a lot of, of ideas of innovative uh, people, of uh, people really investing in new solutions to climate 
and energy questions. And that has been very important to show that for Europeans. And on the other hand, yes, Germany and Europe has some years of experience dealing with very concrete solutions, whether it's laws like feed-in tariffs to promote renewable energies, cap and trade at the European level, or eco-taxes and others, that we can discuss here, not to tell you how you have to do things, but just to learn maybe from our mistakes in Europe or to share some of our experiences. So part of what we are doing here today is, and why the group that Bracken just mentioned, the international group is here, is because we are launching a two-year project called the Transatlantic Climate Policy Group, for which uh, thankfully we got some funds from the EU Commission to exactly promote this dialogue, transatlantic dialogue, at all levels of governance, at the city level, at the state level, and at the federal level, and where we are engaging with policymakers, experts, staffers, people from the governments, and on both sides of the Atlantic and bringing them together. So the visit of the Europeans here in Washington is, is part of it. And uh, I like the way that, that you frame it, Bracken. This is a question of opportunities. Obviously, we are on a crisis, uh, energy crisis and global warming crisis, but at somebody I heard a venture capitalist said just recently, he said, well, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And yes, it is. It would be a pity if we didn't take the chance and really turn things around. And what we are trying to do here today is show very concrete experiences, very concrete ways to dealing with it, and turning a crisis into an opportunity. So I'm very thankful to the Center for American Progress and to Bracken and his team to partnering with us to discuss these things and to all the all the speakers that we'll, we'll discuss here today. And uh, I wish us a, a very intense discussion and, and yes, a very international uh, discussion to this. Thank you. So, uh, I guess before we get started, just thanks again to, to Helga Flores Trejo and uh, for your leadership. And also, I want to just uh, recognize Till Cotter and uh, Arna Jung Johan from uh, Heinrich Ball Foundation, who've put a lot of work into making this delegation happen and, and bringing folks here. Um, it's been a great team effort. Let me just quickly introduce the panel who will be talking today. Uh, first, we'll hear from Zilka Malorny. Uh, she is a senior advisor to a member of the European Parliament, Rebecca Harms. Uh, since 2005, uh, Ms. Malorny has been a senior advisor to, uh, to the me member Harms and uh, in the European Parliament. She's been vice president and spokeswoman on climate and energy issues for the Greens EFA group. Uh, prior to that, Ms. Malorny was a policy advisor to a member of the German Parliament uh, and a spokeswoman on energy policies for the Greens parliamentary group. Uh, among other policy issues she's dealt with the feed-in tariff law, which I hope we'll have a fair amount of discussion about today, which has really created a very robust solar energy industry in Germany, really the leading uh, industry in the world, um, as well as working on uh, liberalization of energy markets in Europe and uh, emissions trading, um, and she has a background in biology. Um, uh, next, we will uh, hear from um, Roan Resch, who is the president of the Solar Energy Industry Association here in the United States. 
he sets the strategic priorities for the solar energy industry uh, as a whole, their political priorities and, uh, and uh, their outreach strategy, as well as running the operations of the organization. For more than 15 years, he's been working in clean energy and climate policy uh, as a vice president for the Natural Gas Supply Association, working with the EPA's Climate Protection Division and with the Department of Energy. Um, he has a master's in management as well as a master's in environmental engineering. Uh, very deep expertise. Uh, next we'll hear from Michelle Moore. Uh, Michelle Moore is a senior vice president for policy and public affairs at the U.S. Green Building Council. The U.S. Green Building Council have really been the leaders in creating the whole industry of, of green building in this country. They established the LEED standard, uh, which is the, the, the tool with which green buildings are recognized and honored. Um, and Michelle has a very, very central role in the organization, doing everything from communications to development to uh, policy. Uh, she really is, runs uh, many, many aspects of the organization. We're very pleased to have her here. She also has a, a fascinating background, having grown up um, in a small town in South Georgia that was a, a textile uh, capital. Uh, she, her worst nightmare was to end up back in LaGrange working in the textile mill, but she did. Uh, when she went back to work for the mill, though, it was uh, working with a man named Ray Anderson, who was starting a company called Interface Carpet, which is one of the leading companies on corporate sustainability and rethinking how products are manufactured and delivered to customers to, in to increase efficiency and reduce uh, product throughputs. Uh, so she has a tremendous background on thinking through corporate sustainability in very real terms. Um, and lastly, uh, but by no means least, we have Eduardos, Eduardo Santos, who is the deputy head of the delegation to the UNFCC negotiations for Portugal. Um, he's been a senior officer for the Portuguese Climate Change Commission, the deputy head of the delegation since 2007. Um, he's focused on European Union, uh, the leader of the European Union uh, ad hoc working group on long-term cooperative action. Uh, and he's coordinated the Portuguese position on EU international negotiations. He's been very involved in thinking through how carbon markets are created, uh, what sorts of, of, of complex issues go on in terms of establishing markets that work, establishing markets that support the growth of the economy. Um, he has also, uh, uh, he was served as a desk officer at the Portuguese Institute for the Environment. Uh, and he has a background both in environmental in engineering and spatial and environmental planning. Uh, so he brings a, a wealth of experience to this conversation as well. So I'm interested to hear the conversation as it moves from very concrete solutions to the broader conversation about carbon emissions. And without any further delay, Zinka, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you, Bracken. Oh, can I move this over a little bit? Is it OK? Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, I'm very happy to see that so many people turned up and are interested in this issue, and I really hope that I will not bore you with things that you already know, but can enlighten you with some new information. Uh, yeah, as you already heard, my name is Zika Maloney, and I'm an advisor to a member of the European Parliament. And before I go more into detail um, into the European situation, or more specifically the German situation of renewable energies, I would like to point out that this actually is not only a European success story, but a really a global success story. Um, renewable and electricity generation capacity reached an estimated 240 gigawatt worldwide in 2007, an increase of 50% since 2004. 
In 2007, more than $100 billion were invested in renewable energy capacity manufacturing plans and research and development. The largest component of renewables generation capacity is wind power, which grew by 28% worldwide in 2007. And the fastest, fastest growing energy technology, which probably Roan will uh, know much more about, is grid-connected solar photovoltaics with 50% annual increase in both 2006 and 2007. But when you look a little bit uh, more into detail which countries actually contribute uh, the most to this development, um, here I'm only taking wind power as, a, as an example, but it's... it's uh, more or less the same picture in other, uh, in other technologies as well, then you'll see that um, out of the top 10 countries in uh, uh, existing wind power capacity and also new wind power capacity, uh, are seven out, out of 10 are uh, European. And uh, you, you can ask the question why that is, um, but and the uh, political situation is very favorable to renewable energies right now in uh, the EU. The EU has committed to the uh, goal to keep global warming below two degrees. And uh, to reach this, uh, the EU has decided to cut uh, CO2 emissions by 20% until 2020 compared to 1990 levels, and uh, even 30% if other industrialized countries decide to do the same in an international agreement. And to increase the share of renewable energies to 20% until 2020, this is uh, electricity production and heating and cooling, as well as in the transport sector. And to increase energy efficiency by 20%, which unfortunately is a non-binding target. Um, now I want to go more into detail uh, when it comes to the 2020 target for renewable energies. The, the total target translates into national targets which have not been agreed yet. The, 20, uh, the overall 20% target for the EU has been agreed, but the national targets are still uh, being discussed and also not, not, not easy probably to reach uh, an agreement, especially in council. Um, and the Commission made this proposal based on both the, the, the situation right now in the different countries as well as on the, uh, on the GDP, so in the capacity that uh, how the countries can invest in renewable energies. It has not been taken into account the, the potential of uh, renewable energies that is in the different countries. And the Commission did not make any suggestions. Oh, this was the wrong direction. No, it wasn't. <laughs> there is um, uh, how to reach this target, really. Um, and, but most of the European countries already have legislation in place to further renewable energies. Um, 20 of the 27 European member states have feed-in tariffs at the moment. They are very different in size and shape and how they uh, also how effective they are and I'm I wouldn't be able to comment on all of them so I will would rather like to uh, to comment on the German system which I'm more familiar with so the main features of the German system are priority access to the grid which means that renewables um, are first in line 
to feed into the grid, and uh, this, the same for transmission and distribution. Um, and on top of that, there is a guaranteed payment per uh, kilowatt hour that is fed in, which is higher than the normal uh, retail prices. And these tariffs differ for the different technologies, um, depending on the maturity of the technology. <coughs> and these payments also decrease uh, yearly, so to enhance efficiency and also to take into account that these technologies get more and more mature every year. One of the main concerns, um, and also uh, one thing that is often criticized with the feed-in tariffs, is that it uh, leads to higher energy prices. But when you look in detail into it, it's really a fairly small share of the uh, electricity prices that the consumer pays. It's only 3%. And uh, despite of this slightly uh, higher electricity prices. The support in Germany for renewable energies is uh, extremely strong. It's 96% of the, uh, of the people support a, an expansion of renewable energy technologies in Germany. And um, in this figure, it's also fairly obvious how the uh, feed-in tariffs really boosted the, the development of, of these technologies. Since 2000, um, there has been a tremendous uh, uh, development in mainly wind power and, uh, and biomass, but also in photovoltaics, even though it might not be as nicely uh, seen in this, this picture, but I'm, I'm very sure we will hear more about that. Um, and this I, I just stole from another presentation because I thought it was so nice, um, even, though <laughs> even though I heard today um, that it was written in the Financial Times that uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, wind industry has uh, passed Germany now and is the world's biggest uh, wind e electricity producer. I still think it is, um, compared to the size of the countries, not that much of a... Of a uh, yeah, not really something to be that proud of, about, really, <laughs> even though it's the right path. <laughs> um, and as Bracken already pointed out earlier, it's, um, it's not only uh, environmental benefits that we gain from this strategy, even though, of course, it is. Um, the uh, approximately 114 million CO2 emissions have been avoided through the use of renewable energy uh, sources in 2007. But it also has a, a, a very strong economic impact on, on Germany. Um, more than 240,000 people uh, now are employed in uh, the renewable sector, rather 250,000, as uh, I read in other uh, papers. And, uh, and in addition to that, the total turnover from renewable sources was uh, 24.6 billion euro in 2007 and 8.5 billion uh, uh, euro worth of technology and equipment has been exported by Germany. Um, so it is, it is really also uh, an uh, economic benefit here. And uh, also it has a, a, an impact on energy security as, uh, as oil and gas prices are going to rise still and uh, the renewable prices are likely to go down, and as this is a, a, a local uh, energy resource, 
this is also helping, even though this is, of course, a, a long time. Uh, so, so you have to look at that in a long uh, perspective, even though the short time prices of energy uh, might. Billion? So yes, of it's this is uh, this is the American one, <laughs> and here it's ju it just to show how how the the turnover is distributed um, uh, in between the different uh, renewables technologies, and uh, here to show a little bit more the the job impact it has had in Germany and the job <coughs> impact that the the industry expects it will have until 2020, which is half a million jobs. So that is quite a lot. And as I learned, it is um, the, the 250,000 uh, people that are employed right now in the renewable energy sector is almost uh, three times uh, the amount of people that are employed in nuclear and, and uh, coal at the moment. Thank you. Thank you very much. And so now some of the American perspective is Ron Rush. Thank you very much, Bracken, and, and, and I'd like to thank the uh, Center for American Progress and, and the Heinrich Boll Foundation for sponsoring this important dialogue. Uh, many of you are familiar with what Al Gore said last week, that within 10 years we should have 100 percent of our energy coming from renewable energy sources. And the good news in following up that statement is that we can do it. We've got the technology, it's going to come off the shelf, and we have the resources in this country, but do we have the will? And what I want to talk a little bit about today is how solar energy in the United States can be uh, the primary solution towards global warming here in the United States. It's always important to have a baseline so we know what we're talking about, um, where we're going from. Right now, solar represents about one-sixth of one percent of all the electricity in the United States. So it's pretty pathetic, but um, at least shows that we have a great uh, growth opportunity in front of us. Um, when you look at non-hydro renewables, you're looking at about 2.4 percent of all the electricity generated here in the United States. And to understand why we only have such a small amount of renewable in the United States, it's important to look at where our investments have gone in the last 60 years. This pie chart shows you where the federal government has put their money over the course of the last 60 years in the United States. And you can see it was dominated by coal, petroleum, natural gas, and nuclear energy. Well, guess what? You make those kinds of investments, you're going to have that type of generation in this country. And that's exactly what we have. But there's another important thing to point out. Only 1.2% of all the federal funding has gone into renewable energy projects in that same time period, yet renewable energy generates 2.4% of our electricity. In my opinion, that's probably the best investment that we've made as a federal government. We're getting a greater return on putting our money into renewable energy than we are into fossil energy sources. So it's important, you know, I think, to follow up and talk a little bit when we, when we say, you know, solar's got great resources, got great potential, to put it in context. And, and, and this is a map, uh, an insulation map of Germany. It shows the amount of sunlight that falls on the country. Uh, the darker the colors, the, the better. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, what, what we'd, we, we've talked a little bit about and Silicon mentioned is that Germany is the leading market for solar energy in the world. And they are. They install about eight times as much solar each year as we do in the United States. But when you look at solar resources in Germany and you compare that to the solar resources in the United States, you very quickly realize the massive potential we have, the massive untapped potential uh, that we have here in the U.S. to convert 
are photons to electrons. If solar works well in Germany, just think how spectacularly it will work here in the United States. And just to put it in context, I mean, Germany has a solar equivalent of Anchorage, Alaska. And it's not bad sunlight. It's just not as good as what we have. And so I applaud the Germans for their leadership in making that investment in, in renewable energy during one of the worst economic downturns since World War II. So for those of us who say we can't afford to do it now, I kind of say we actually can't afford not to do it. So here's what's happened in Germany. This is a little bit more of a breakout in the photovoltaic industry, um, looking at how that market has grown over the course of the last uh, 16 years. And what you see really is a jump start that occurred in 2004 with a reorganization of the feed-in tariff. And, and that has resulted in a spectacular growth, a growth that has not been replicated in the United States at all. Uh, when Spain put the feed-in tariff in uh, about 18 months ago, they have experienced the same type of exponential type of growth. This is truly the hockey stick when economists start talking about once things change, once you start to see transformative change in technology. Uh, that's occurring certainly in Germany and, um, uh, and in other places uh, throughout Europe. So here's the relatively anemic U.S. market growth that we've seen over the last uh, eight years. And what's interesting is the U.S. market's still been growing, growing at about 45% annual. That's a compound annual growth rate. So it's not, it's not bad, and certainly many industries would be thrilled to have a 45% growth rate. But as you can see, we're only installing about 188 megawatts on an annual basis here in the United States. But when you start to look forward and you start to say, okay, we have in place today some strong policies and a strong industry and a finance sector that's embraced renewables, here's the potential that starts to take off very quickly. And you see the U.S. market growing at over 80% per year in the next three years. So we really anticipate strong growth as long as we have strong support from the federal government. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. But what's important to understand is that the solar industry really encompasses three completely different technologies. There's solar water heating, which you use panels to heat and cool, uh, to generate hot water for your home. Uh, there's concentrating solar power, which are utility-scale power plants. And then there's photovoltaics, which we primarily talk about because I think it's probably the most sexy and largest, uh, fastest-growing segment of the energy industry. But this is what a solar water heating system looks like. Right now, we install about 15 to 18,000 systems in the United States annually, about 80,000 in Germany, and 250,000 annually in China. Uh, Israel and Spain mandate installations of solar water heating in every new home constructed in those countries. Why? Because this technology directly displaces natural gas. It's fundamental for energy independence. It's fundamental for energy security. In the long run, keeping energy costs lower for consumers. Uh, in the United States, we uh, bailed on tax credits to the solar water heating, frankly, in the solar industry uh, back in the 80s with the Reagan administration. And uh, we did not have any new incentives for solar until the 2005 energy bill, so literally a generation later. So when people say, gosh, what's happened to solar? Why are we so far behind? The reality is the federal government has turned its back on, on solar. Um, we're, we're trying to change that, though, and we anticipate that with the federal tax credits that are in place today, we will see very strong growth on the order of 67% per year, what we've seen for the last two years with the federal tax credit in place. You keep that in place for the next 10 years, we'll be installing 2.5 million systems annually on homes throughout the U.S. CSP, this is utility-scale power plants. These are parabolic troughs or, or linear fren uh, Fresnel um, uh, mirrors that focus the sunlight to generate uh, what we call utility scale temperature, 750 to 1300 degrees. And uh, what that is then used is to generate steam and to, to run a standard power block. These are four different technologies that we uh, are seeing developed in the United States today. And the great news is, as I pointed out before, we have 
the best solar resources of any developed country in the world near metropolitan areas. And so we have an incredible technical potential in the Southwest. Right now, if you were to take this map, slice off all of those resources, all of those land areas that uh, contain environmentally sensitive lands, uh, Native American lands that have slopes greater than 2%, and you're really to filter down to just a very small subset of this, you would find that that capacity of existing resources, which are very, very small slice, less than 1% of what you see on this map, would generate 10 times the total amount of electricity used each year in the United States. So the, the resource potential is absolutely enormous, but it's grossly untapped. Right now there's 125 projects uh, on federal lands that have been uh, uh, permitted, or at least have been, uh, filed applications for permits to, to construct over the next several years. And interestingly enough, about, uh, about two months ago, the Bureau of Land Management issued a moratorium on new uh, CSP uh, applications without ever issuing one permit for one acre of land. Absolutely amazing. So um, the bottom line is the timing is right. The timing is a right not only to address climate change, but also to address the market volatility that's occurring in natural gas, oil, and electricity. And I think what we're starting to see is a fundamental shift in talent from uh, the integrated circuit industry to the photovoltaic industry, from other segments of Wall Street to the renewable energy space, and those are going to be absolutely critical to making the difference. So very quickly, and I promised Bracken I'd stay to seven minutes, and I'm probably already over. Uh, very quickly, how do we expand the market uh, for solar in the United States? There's four legs to this stool. The first is a long-term commitment to R&D. The second is long-term state incentives. The third is long-term and meaningful federal incentives. And the final one is public education. And I don't want to go into all of these, but I do want to focus on the long-term meaningful federal incentives. This is a different approach than what you'll see in Europe. In the United States, we have over 3,000 utilities. In Germany, there's effectively four utilities. It's a totally different ballgame with respect to electricity law, with respect to electricity infrastructure. So what may work in Europe may not work as well here in the United States, and we need to be thoughtful and, and recognize that there's a role for both federal as well as state governments. Right now, the federal tax credits for solar energy expire at the end of this year. We've had uh, 12 votes so far in Congress, five in the House. They passed out of the House each time. Uh, we've had seven in the Senate, and they've been filibustered effectively by the Republicans seven times. It's absolutely amazing to me that we are at a point where for solar, wind, and geothermal, we're becoming an economic engine in this country, and yet Congress doesn't recognize that potential and is un unwilling to put aside partisan politics to make this happen. We're running up very closely to a time frame where uh, we're going to see serious economic impacts in our industry if the tax credits are not extended. Just to give you a perspective, in solar and wind, in 2009, if our tax credits are not extended, we will lose 119,000 jobs here in the United States and over $19 billion of economic investment. That's next year alone in this country. So we go from being an economic engine to the next industry on the unemployment line if these tax credits are not extended. But there's other critical federal legislation that's being considered right now that turns the U.S. market in from one that was growing very rapidly in the true hockey stick and helps us achieve uh, Al Gore's vision of 100% renewables within 10 years. Uh, the first is H.R. Uh, 6401, the Renewable Energy Jobs and Security Act. Um, this is critical. This is uh, Jay Inslee's uh, legislation, which creates a, a complementary feed-in tariff um, and mandatory purchase requirements at the federal level uh, for states to implement. So it's additive, if you will, to the investment tax credit. The second is global warming uh, legislation. 
It was discussed this year with Warner Lieberman. Improvements need to be made. We need to make sure that clean energy technologies, carbon-free technologies, can monetize the output of their electricity emissions into carbon credits, and they can participate in the electricity marketplace. And then finally, the Solar Act, which was introduced this last year in both the House and Senate, had strong bipartisan support. It creates a level playing field. It allows solar to access the electricity marketplace. A lot of people say, gosh, if you just remove all the incentives for oil and gas and coal and nukes and get rid of all of them for wind and solar and just have a free market, wouldn't that be great? And the answer is, yeah, that would be great except for the fact you, one, funded those industries for over 100 years, and two, we still have public policy barriers that don't allow elect uh, solar electricity to compete in the, in the marketplace. We need to just allow competition in the United States, and that Solar Act is absolutely critical. So with that, I want to thank you for your patience and your time, and I look forward to answering your questions. And uh, now Michelle Moore from the U.S. Green Building Council. Thank you. I'd like to tell you all a very short story about market transformation in a tremendously conservative industry and market transformation in the absence of any substantive policy support for creating change. Because it's very much how the green buildings marketplace is developed up until this point in the U.S., uh, which is today at a stage where there's not only significant adoption and significant mind share. Uh, just in terms of a commitment on the part of the leaders in a large industry, 14.7% of U.S. GDP, uh, that green buildings are simply the future. Uh, but we're also at a stage in which we could really look to our European colleagues to learn from the successes both across Europe and in leading countries like Germany that have been experienced through raising the floor uh, through stronger building codes, uh, through other policy mechanisms, and through labeling programs that help to further market transformation. So uh, what's the big picture on buildings and why do they matter? You know, obviously, it's the demand side of things, which is a little bit different from what most of the folks on the panel are talking about today. In the US, buildings account for 39% of CO2 emissions. It's more than cars and trucks. Uh, globally, that number is 38%. And in big cities like New York, it's more like 80%. It's a huge piece of the climate change equation. Um, but it's tremendously fractured. In the U.S., that 39% comes from approximately 116 million buildings, 5.1 million commercial and institutional buildings, and about 111 million homes. So it's incredibly disaggregated. We also have a huge environmental footprint with our buildings. 12% uh, of consumption of potable water comes from you know, the places we work, like the place that we're in right now, where we literally flush drinkable water down the toilet many times a day, some people more than others. Um, and it has a tremendous impact on our, on our personal health as well. And you don't really think about it. I think we tend to take buildings for granted because they're such an um, ever-present part of our infrastructure, but as Americans, we spend about 90% of our time indoors. So the toxic emissions that come from your typical carpet, furniture, paint, and other finishes that we're surrounded by all day tend to aggravate things like childhood asthma and other respiratory ailments, uh, give you headaches and buildup of CO2 or carbon monoxide and carbon, rather carbon dioxide in a room like this over the course of an afternoon without proper ventilation is what makes you sleepy after lunch uh, when you're ready to take a nap and pass out and run screaming out into the sunlight around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
It's also a source of high-quality jobs. And if you think about the big picture of climate policy in this country, as has been illustrated very wonderfully by the McKinsey Report that came out last November, it's really essential for us as a nation to collect on the promise of the economic benefit of driving efficiency in our buildings and our homes, which uh, McKinsey states is being cost negative, which I think in regular English means it's a profitable thing, um, to be able to really you know, develop the investment capital that we'll need over the long haul for more expensive technologies to develop for R&D programs and for technologies that are very expensive to bring up to scale as well, um, like carbon capture or like plug-in hybrids. So there are other challenges as well in greening our built environment in addition to disaggregation. Disaggregation not only is challenging to uh, deal with from an implementation perspective, but it's also really easy for people to be irrational with small amounts of money. Um, you know, an investment in energy efficiency in your home could save you probably somewhere between $500 and $1,000 per year for an average house. That's real money to a lot of families, uh, but it's money that's easy not to pay attention to when you don't see it until after you get your utility bill at the end of the month. And similarly, for commercial buildings that are pulling in $100 million a year in rent, you know, saving a hundred, or rather saving a million dollars a year in your utility costs is a nice thing, uh, but it's easy to ignore when the construction market's booming. Um, as I said earlier on, the construction industry is also fairly conservative. You know, we've been doing things the same way for thousands of years. It's one of the biggest industries on earth. It's probably its second oldest, and uh, it's pretty reticent to change. So, and the last is a lack of technical skills. You know, building green is a little bit different. It doesn't require a lot of newfangled, expensive technology, but it does require you to think a little bit differently. You have to set integrated goals and decide what the energy performance of the whole structure is going to be instead of thinking about your air conditioning system separately from your windows, separately from your roofing material, separately from your ins insulation, which is how things typically go in the construction industry. And it takes a while to really educate people, the small army of people that uh, have to be mobilized to build a building. So these are the challenges that we've been facing. But we've had tremendous success in this country so far. And what I'd like to characterize is a good start. You know, today we're affecting about 10% of all new commercial construction in the U.S. Uh, we're beginning to make a dent in the residential marketplace, at least in terms of what consumers want uh, when they're renovating their homes, uh, when they're buying their homes, which of course is not happening a whole lot right now. Uh, but energy efficiency and greener, more sustainable lifestyles are very much on people's minds. And perhaps most importantly, um, we're making huge progress in re-educating an industry uh, that hasn't seen a lot of innovation in a very long time. Uh, USGBC has a program called Lead Accredited Professionals, and uh, Lead APs, uh, that distinction can be applied across many fields in the construction industry. And there are 3,500 professionals who are taking the test to become a Lead AP every month. And there are 55,000 in this country today, only five years after the program's launch. And the accreditation program just went global. And today we're testing more people in Dubai, China, India, and Brazil than we are in the U.S., if you combine those numbers. So, again, it, it's a good start. But how have we gotten here? There have been four things that I think have been really critical to the success that USGBC has had so far in changing the way that buildings get built and, even more importantly, changing minds. One is setting measurable goals. We love to measure things. 
right? We like numbers. We like statistics. And so, you know, the greatest power that the Lead Green Building rating system has is it sets measurable goals that can be propagated across a large project team, across years, that can be integrated into CSR reports or into financial statements that let people know not only what they need to accomplish, but when they've accomplished it. They can check it off the list and feel good about that. Uh, number two, you know, we've really focused on building the business case. You know, LEED's been around for about seven years, and for about 6.34 of those years, you know, there was this enormous, almost overwhelming myth out in the marketplace that if you did something good, if you built a green building, it was going to cost you a pound of flesh that you would never, ever get back. Not like a diet, not like the things we like in a very bad way. And um, that translated to, you know, people thinking it was going to be like a cost premium of 20 or 30 percent, which is crazy outrageous. You know, the reality is more like zero to 1.5 percent. And so really working on creating that business case, demonstrating that the costs aren't that much higher and that there's tremendous value over the long term. Where we are in the market today is making going green not only a competitive advantage, but a competitive imperative. You know, if you talk to leading real estate developers today, they'll tell you that if you're building a Class A commercial office space and it's not a certified green building, it's obsolete and you're going to lose out on rents and you're going to lose out on valuation when you ultimately put the building up for sale. That's not something USGBC's done. That's something that the market's responded with. And there's an increasing body of third-party evidence that demonstrates this. And what focusing on leadership uh, focusing on a voluntary program using market mechanisms and people's competitive drive and people's desire to do better and in our industry people's awareness that they're you know what they're building is literally a legacy that's going to be left behind for their kids and their kids kids and their kids 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 um, has cleared the way to begin to raise the regulatory bar and again you know look to our colleagues in Europe to see what the successes have been there California just did that last Friday. They instituted a statewide green building code for the commercial marketplace that's aggressive and that'll create change there and that doesn't um, prevent localities around the state from pushing even further. And there are more than 100 localities in the U.S. who today are exploring similar policies through some combination of leadership by example with government buildings, with schools, tremendously important uh, folks to think about. Um, by implementing incentives, by implementing building labeling programs, mandatory point-of-purchase efficiency improvements, and a whole host of other policies. And the results have been incredible from that perspective as well in terms of really changing the market economy in the building sector. Uh, in residential construction, green building is the one bright spot. You not only see micro markets around the U.S. where green homes are actually still selling and selling at a small premium, but you see a real rush of builders and contractors into learning how to build green because they know there's a competitive advantage there in the future. Um, McGraw-Hill estimates that it will be about a $40 billion marketplace by 2010, which is a significant percentage of the construction economy overall. Um, voluntary programs in the face of the tremendous sense of urgency that we all have about addressing the causes of climate change um, are not enough. I mean, speed is quality in this game, and it's tremendously important that we all keep score. There are capacity constraints in the industry that need to be addressed through investment in green jobs at every level, federal, state, and local. You know, the good news is that the green building market's booming. The bad news is that if you live in Washington, D.C. and want someone to come do a deep energy retrofit on your home, good luck. I think there are three people here who know how to do it. 
And um, there are also a lot of laggards, you know. We got to bring up the rear. There are always folks in any industry that just don't change until someone makes them. And the leaders in our sector have been successful in bringing down the costs for everybody else. Thank God, right? So there's no excuse not to do better. And um, again, innovative programs for Europe like building labeling that lets people know what performance they're getting when they purchase a building so that you know, effectively lifetime mortgage that you get in your utility bill is something that's explicitly a part of the package you're purchasing when you're buying a home. Uh, again, sort of going back to that point of speed is quality. Um, ultimately, you know, as we move towards a carbon-constrained economy in the U.S., uh, please let that be sooner rather than later, uh, there's a real opportunity for buildings and utilities to work together much more closely. The kinds of programs that we've seen coming out of, of course, the tremendously progressive California and uh, a couple of other pockets around the U.S. I mean, ultimately, buildings, again, that low-hanging fruit in terms of efficiency, but given the way the utility industry has traditionally worked, you know, they understand things very well about up to the meter and not necessarily having a deeper engagement with the customer. So there's extraordinary opportunity for action and for driving more progressive policies and approach to the marketplace, you know, leading up to a national climate change um, policy that we've adopted across the board that could help us to teach us to move faster once that cap is in place. And just as a closing thought, you know, if we're, if we're incredibly smart and move fast and have this, you know, wonderfully effective marketplace and a transatlantic dialogue to learn from, you know, what we could have is a very different kind of future for our built environment. You know, one where the conversation isn't just, you know, how can we eke out 35% energy efficiency, uh, but one in which our buildings are really serving as a distributed energy generation grid. You know, where not just individual homes or individual commercial buildings, but communities are using their waste, are using the sun, uh, are using wind to generate power at the community scale. You know, where energy is a little bit more like we think of, um, you know, communications with cell phones. And we're able to be much smarter about our construction practices so that we're not just doing less harm. We're actually helping to restore environmental quality and restore economic prosperity community as well because, um, as Bracken has observed so many times on, uh, in discussions of green jobs, uh, construction, energy efficiency, building management, it's fundamentally local. You can't export that job, and it's also a job that's never finished. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michelle. And uh, that's, I think, a nice segue from looking at how in the United States we've, we've created these opportunities for leadership and creating new industries and using the market incentives in the absence of regulation to a discussion about really what needs to kind of underlie this whole conversation is what is the regulatory structure for carbon as we start to really think about a world where we have to rein in our carbon emissions. So Eduardo uh, Santos, I, I look forward to hearing uh, your thoughts on the... Um, the creation of, of European carbon markets and, and how that can kind of underlie uh, this whole discussion. Okay, thank you everyone. I don't seem to be managing the technology, so <laughs> I'll use old-fashioned technology. I will, in, in, this, in this presentation, I will address the uh, Europeans' experience with basically emissions trading or cap and trade. And I will focus on, on three phases of, the, of our experience. The, 
the first phase, as you know, ran from 2005 to 2007, and it's basically a learning by doing phase. And uh, the second phase will, will be during our Kyoto commitment. So it's 2008 to 2012. And I'll touch upon the, the role that the, the ETS will play in, in, that, in, in achieving that commitment. And the third phase is post-2012 and, and also the role that the, the ETS will continue to play in, in terms of our, our own climate policy and climate strategy. So lessons learned from the, from the first phase. Uh, scarcity, it's one of the key issues in terms of the su success of establishing a market. And that relates basically with the cap setting but also with with other provisions that ensure that you that everyone speaks the same language and that's fundamentally important basically in Europe where you have 27 countries and you don't and the the way the the cap setting was was established was decentralized each meaning that each country set its own its own cap on its own country and then we added up in in the end to to the to the the European cap. Um, one very important experience, and I think that also is is important translating into the U.S. dialogue on this, is that it doesn't have to be perfect from the start. You you can you can start uh, immediately implementing this 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 kind of mechanisms, and you can improve with with time. It took us about one and a half years negotiating the, the the first the first directive on the first piece of legislation on on the emissions trading. Uh, what what did what did we accomplish in this first phase? We successfully established a carbon price. We we had achieved we achieved some emission reductions. I've seen some some estimates in the order of 50 to 100 million tons in this period. And we've also gathered extensive experience and established infrastructure on the system, and that is very important in, in, in the longer run. What's the relationship with, with the, the carbon market? Another thing that was very important in this period is that the, basically the, the European, the, the ETS is, we can say that the, the engine of uh, an, emerging, um, an emerging global carbon market. And these figures come from the World Bank assessment from 2008. And basically, we have a multi-billion dollar carbon market now, roughly $64 billion, billion globally. And the UETS represents $50 billion of, of that. The, the second biggest pie in, the, in, that, in that carbon market it's project-based transactions, basically CDM and JI. And that is, again, fueled by European governments, European private sector that's involved in the ETS, and also Japan. On, on the, moving on to the second phase, that's 2008 to 2012, one thing that we also, and coming back to lessons learned from the first phase, the cap setting. So we now have stricter rules in, in setting the, the cap for this second period. And 
as you can see in this in this slide here, which shows prices in the first in the in the first map and trading volumes in the second, running from January 2005 to 2008, and the the darker the darker blue line shows first phase prices for the credits, and the lighter blue shows second phase prices for for the for the credits. So you can see in the first phase that price drop that that everyone speaks about in in Europe, basically because there was over allocation in in the, in the system. But what what's interesting is that you can see for that for phase two credits, it has consistently the prices have, have consistently run in the in the in the 15 to 25 uh, euros uh, band. And ever since mid-2007, when the, the, the caps for the second period started to, to be more clear, you see that the prices were higher. And, it, and they now are run in the 20 to 25 euros uh, estimates. And what, what, this, what this translates is a response from the market that, okay, there was this price drop in the, in the, first, in the first period, but the, it, the issue is being addressed, and there will be more stricter caps for the second phase, and so the prices are, are up and, and are consistent with, with uh, the, the kind of, of prices that we, we would like to see in, in the transition to, to a low-carbon economy. So moving on to the third phase that will run from 2013 to 2020, and it, the ETS is for, for us a system that works. Emission reductions and carbon markets are, are an important part and will continue to be an important part in our response to, to climate change. And it will be fundamental in achieving the, the objectives that we've set ourselves in, internally in the EU and that we will be negotiating internationally with, with the, the whole international community. So again, addressing the, that cap-setting issue, we are, we are seeing a movement from each individual country setting its own cap to a European-wide cap. That and with a, uh, a defined uh, pathway that runs beyond even 2020. So that gives the, oper the, the operators and investors greater certainty in the market. We see greater harmonization of rules and procedures. Again, everyone has to speak the same language, and that's especially hard and important in, in a fragmented market as the, the European market is in this case, uh, a move to higher auctioning levels, uh, some provisions addressing carbon leakage, that is international uh, competitiveness issues, and very important also the possibility of linking with other schemes, and that's particularly uh, relevant here in, in terms of, of the, the debate in the, in the US also. So basic conclusions from, from this experience. We've established a carbon, a carbon price. There is a carbon market out there. It's a, a multi-billion dollar carbon market. We have experience with, b both by government operators and other 
uh, stakeholders in, involved in, in, the, in this market, and there, there has been emission reductions delivered. The, for the second period, for the, the commitment period under Kyoto, the, the ETS will play also a major role in, in Europe's achieving this, and we have an estimate of roughly 40% of, of the, the effort in achieving this Kyoto commitment for the EU15 will, will come from the ETS. And it will continue to, to play, and it, if, if anything, will, it will have a strengthened role in a post-2012 climate strategy. And I will conclude very briefly with, with this linking issue with the, of, of trading schemes. And as Bracken was saying, we have a lot to learn from, from each other, and I think this is particularly one, one of the issues that where we can, we can strengthen that, that, that interchange and, and, the, and that, those experiences. Thank you. Thank you, all of you. That was a, a great series of, of, uh, of presentations, and I think there's a, a tremendous amount of, of linkage between them, although they're each in a very sort of distinct area. Um, I'm actually very excited by this conversation of solutions and of the, of the underlying policy mechanisms that can, can actually bring about transformation of the entire economy, uh, both nationally and globally. I guess to start out with, um, I would be very curious to hear from um, our friends from Europe um, just a little bit more about the experience with markets as we're starting to think through the creation of a carbon market here and setting a real carbon cap. Um, you clearly have a lot of, of lessons learned. You were talking about sort of tightening uh, the, the supply of carbon credits and the benefits in, in creating a stable market of having a tighter supply of carbon credits. Certainly where you set caps has been a major issue here. Um, and then underlying that, there's the question of auctioning and allocating uh, those credits and, and how much uh, resources are, are brought into the government and how much uh, the value of the credits are given away. And I guess two, two things that I'd like to sort of think about as you talk a little bit about both setting of caps and how to auction and, or allocate. Um, there's been uh, two major concerns here that we want to get right uh, as we think about setting a cap on carbon are um, impacts on industries that are, are heavily susceptible to international competition. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the cement industry, you know, very carbon intensive, energy intensive industries. I know there's been, you know, you've had to deal with a lot of those, those questions. I would love to hear some of those experiences and also impacts on energy costs and whether it really has been a burden on consumers or, or uh, whether that's been, been something manageable. So that's maybe a big question, but grab off a piece of it, and I think it will be helpful. So, um, Silke or Eduardo, either one of you want to jump in? Or? Yeah, I, I maybe I, I will not focus so much on the uh, on the specific uh, ETS questions here, as Eduardo is uh, is really more knowledgeable about that. But um, I I would like to to say something at least about the energy the impact on energy costs, and therefore I'm also extremely happy about Michelle's presentation because um, I, I think this, these two things always have to be discussed together. It's not only about the production side, but also on the demand side. So um, uh, uh, surely these uh, these legislations have an impact on, on uh, energy prices, both the renewables as well as the ETS. But um, on the other hand, if you bring down the demand 
um, uh, from the consumer side, then also the costs will be lower in the end. So uh, therefore, I think this is the, it's very important to see that this is not also the renewables is not only on top of what we have. It's not to go on with business as usual, but top it off with uh, some renewables, but really to change also the consumption patterns uh, that, that we see today. Um, also, the question of energy uh, intensive industries is, uh, is a very, very deb uh, controversial one also in the European Parliament, especially in the industry committee that um, I'm working in. And uh, there I think it, it, is, it is extremely uh, important to look which of the industries are actually affected by these prices and then which of these really affected industries are actually um, uh, exposed to global market or to global competition. Because then we will see um, in an analysis that it's not that many and it's not that much that we have to actually address. But I'm, I'm sure this has to be addressed and that um, as soon as we have this analysis, which industries that is and how they are affected, we will also be able to say uh, how we can address it really. This might be um, uh, tax measures um, in, at, the, at the borders, that might be uh, free allocation, even it could be direct, uh, direct measures. So, so first we would really have to know what it is and how they are affected before we, we can uh, come with a, with a solution for that. I, I would like to leave it with that. Thanks for the questions. On, on the cap, our, the basic way that we set our caps or, that we, or the basic rationale is following our Kyoto targets, basically, and the contribution that, that uh, the emissions trading can have on that. And that has been the, the case before, even when, when the, res the main responsibility in setting the caps was it, with the member states obviously with, a, with an oversight by the Commission in order to ensure more consistency and to, to ensure the, the functioning of, the, of the, the internal EU market, to ensure that there is no competi competitiveness issues arising from that. But, but basically it comes from the need that we, and the commitment that we have in terms of restricting our, our emissions and going for a, a low carbon society. In terms of auctioning, that is that is one of another one of the, the lessons learned, and I'll I'll take this in conjunction with the, the energy costs because one of the, the arguments that we often see is that more auctioning will will inevitably raise energy energy costs and electricity costs, and many studies that I've consulted have basically show that the costs will, will be higher anyway, the, and the real issue will be if there are windfall profits for, for the, the utilities or, or not, and, for, and, and in certain sectors. And so auctioning is, is, a, is, is in, in, a, in a sense, a simpler way, a more effective way of allocating the, the, the emissions, and also, it's a revenue uh, source. 
and you could use this revenue to recycle in your own economies, and you can use this, this revenue in, in terms of financing an international agreement that you will need because the, the, the kind of mitigation and adaptation actions that, that you will need globally will require a whole lot of, of money. And this is one, one of those sources that you can tap in effectively in terms of, of, of delivering these this kinds of actions. Uh, Silke already, already addressed the impacts on industry, and I would just compliment saying that it's not only in, in the parliament, it's in council, it's in every, everywhere in, in European societies. Nowadays, it's, it's a current debate. And we, we are having basically the same debate, I gather, that, that you are having here in the, in the US. And I would just compliment saying that the, the best way, and there is no perfect solutions, but the best way would be to, to address these com competitiveness issues would be through a, a, a global agreement, where every, every single of these sectors that, as, as Silga already, already mentioned, there aren't that many sectors that are specifically addressed here uh, would be covered in the same way, independent of, of the kind of the country they're, they're in. And that would be the, the most effective way of, of addressing this issue. And I think I'll leave it at that for now. Um, and I guess for, uh, for, for Ron and Michelle, um, sort of uh, the flip side of this is, um, you know, We've much of what you've talked about has happened in the absence of regulation or as a result of, of small local policies uh, and, and really pretty modest incentives. Um, I'd be curious to hear, you know, Roan, you talked a bit about already sort of some sort of the core policies for solar, but what more is needed from a policy perspective to actually grow the, uh, the economic opportunity here and, and create some of the jobs? And, and just let me add one more kind of wrinkle on that, which is, um, Michelle talked a little bit about the explosion of the of the uh, construction industry in China, um, and I believe the if thirty percent of the world's construction cranes are in the United Arab Emirates right now. Uh, but these are being done by by American and European engineering firms and architectural firms. How can we, uh, through some sort of policy change or, or large scale change here, export green practices rather than exporting uh, current wasteful practices because we really are setting the, the framework right now. Uh, I'll, I'll take a first cut at it if it, it's okay. It's interesting to note that the U.S. right now is a net exporter of solar energy. Um, we probably export about 50 percent uh, more than what we consume here in the United States. Excuse me, 50 percent of what we consume. Um, so about a third of our production is going overseas, which is encouraging. And when you look at the manufacturing of photovoltaics, in particular in the United States, the number one state for manufacturing is Ohio. The number two state is Michigan. The number three state is, um, is actually Maryland. And then we go to Massachusetts and California. <clears throat> and so what you tend to see is you know, really high quality green collar jobs. I know that phrase is used over and over, but we tend to see those jobs being created in the in the, the markets the state markets that have manufacturing expertise and frankly where they need those jobs the most michigan has the highest rate of unemployment in the country right now and in dave camp's district uh, he's a, a congressman from the fourth district of michigan he's lost over ten thousand manufacturing jobs since he's been a congressman 
which is absolutely amazing. But in the last three years, they're creating almost 2,000 new jobs for uh, uh, in his district that are solar energy related alone, both in the polysilicon side as well as in the cell and, and module side. And, and I think what that really shows is that solar isn't just going to be in Arizona and California, but it's going to create jobs throughout the entire country. And, uh, you know, when, when Bracken, when you ask what is needed, you know, what is the suite of policies that are needed? And, and, and I think, you know, we can debate back and forth what incentive works better than the others. But I think what's absolutely critical and what does uh, not exist in the United States is a long-term policy that provides a, a, a uh, level of support that industry can rely upon. Because you're talking about building, you know, uh, uh, new factories that are going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars. You're talking about building new utility-scale power plants that will cost in, into the billions of dollars. And in fact, you look at uh, Abengoa, a, a power plant that's being built or that's planned to be built for Arizona Public Service just outside of Phoenix. They're going to use more steel in that plant than what was used to build the Golden Gate Bridge in, in uh, San Francisco. So you start to look at just the sheer you know, uh, 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 number of jobs and opportunities that these industries create if you provide a long-term incentive. Just to give you perspective, the 2005 energy bill, as I was pointing out before, the first new incentives for solar energy for in a generation they created and passed those those provisions for only two years you can't build an industry on a two-year tax credit it's impossible and so what we've seen is is that tax credit does work but we need it extended for a long period of time uh, the german feed-in tariff is a 20-year plan spanish same thing and you know when Japan, who is is also a world leader in photovoltaics, originally created their program, it was for 12 years. So providing a long enough duration such that that particular incentive can be monetized properly by the markets and put in place is absolutely critical. We can debate back and forth if it's you know what, what the actual right incentive is, but what's absolutely key and from our opinion uh, nece you know, necessary in the next couple of weeks is that Congress pass a long-term eight-year extension of the investment tax credits for solar energy. To, to, to respond to, in, in part anyway, briefly, to, to both the questions that you posed, Bracken, I, I think that the first and most important thing that we have to do across the board is to transform our thinking. You know, we're not going to solve this problem with the same kinds of ideas that got us into it, and uh, nor with the same kinds of tools. And to me, that means three things, whether those things get expressed in sort of policy mechanisms or in market mechanisms. Is number one, we have to set integrated goals, not siloed goals, because that de-optimizes the system by fragmenting it. Number two, we need to focus on what's abundant. What do we have a lot of versus what we don't have a lot of? Solar is a great example. Efficiency opportunities are a great example. And that can be applied at the granular market development level as well. And three, we have to keep score. You know, if there are three Ps of sustainability, typically, that people talk about, um, people, prosperity, and planet, I would argue that there's a fourth, and that's proof. Um, everybody in the world is green these days, right? Exxon is green. And, um, you know, proof's in the pudding, though. Show us what you're really doing. Um, from a building's perspective and policy and, and driving these things further forward, there's some very straightforward near-term opportunities. You know, number one is greening our schools. It's complicated, you know, in terms of implementing, but it's the single largest construction marketplace in the U.S., and it could and would turn the tide for the rest of the marketplace much more rapidly. Twenty percent of America goes to school every day. What better place to demonstrate to the next generation that we're serious about leaving them a healthy climate? just makes sense. Uh, number two, 
focus on existing buildings. Existing buildings are 90% of the efficiency opportunity, but you know what? Existing buildings are not big, sexy architecture, and it's hard to get people to pay attention to them. You know, the federal government, state governments, municipal governments are the largest landlords, not only in this country, but sort of in the entire world. And so making a commitment to greening existing government buildings would help build a market, build capacity, and educate people and enable them to serve the private marketplace as well. And the third would be to invest in job skills training, not only through a commitment to market capacity building by leading by example, uh, but also really helping to train not just new people coming into the workforce, but retrain you know, your air conditioner installers, your small and minority contractors that are doing city contracts who are interested not only in having an economic opportunity, but in being able to serve the communities where they live better. There's tremendous opportunity in just recognizing that people want to do good and helping them to do it. Um, internationally, from a policy perspective, I think it's much more complicated. You know, the opportunity tends to be to chase the money, and um, we're exporting horrendous architectural and engineering firms or forms to Dubai, um, where they're doing some of that on their own. I don't know who thought it was a good idea to put an indoor ski slope in the middle of a desert, but that thing can't be energy efficient no matter what it does. Um, you know, where. <laughs> We're exporting them to China, India, all over the place. Um, but in, again, sort of applying different thinking that we're able to, both as governments who are um, building abroad, building with our embassies and other government buildings that may be you know, not located in country, uh, but also with our trade missions and the way that we engage people, not only in the economic opportunity associated with sustainability within our own borders, but as a trade opportunity you know, associated with technology transfer to developing nations who don't have to do it as dumbly as we did the first time around in building infrastructure is a better business opportunity than going and building things that are just as big an energy hog as they are down the block. Now we have a few minutes left. We've gone a little long with our, the first part of the panel, but I would love to, to hear questions from the audience, and uh, uh, especially if there's reporters. And, uh, but um, So uh, I guess you and... So Friedman, I'm with Climate Wire. Um, I hope I'm not the only person here who needs a little bit of an explanation of, of what feed-in tariffs are and how they work, but I do. Um, <laughs> and so I was hoping that, Silke, you could talk about how these 20-year tariffs have helped transform the, the renewable sector in, in Germany. And I, forgive my ignorance, I mean, are there things that make this difficult to implement in the U.S.? Is there something about our system or our grid that makes this a problem here? If, if you could go into that, Ron. Do you want to you you first? No, okay. Mm. All right. Um, yeah, the, the feed-in tariffs, um, they, uh, as uh, Ron already mentioned, they, they give uh, investment security to the companies by um, giving them the guarantee that all of the electricity they produce will um, taken into the market, so uh, they have guaranteed access to the grid. So they are the first in line. So um, all the electricity they produce, they know they will also sell. And um, this is guaranteed for the, these uh, 20 years that have been mentioned. And uh, also the tariffs, uh, so the, the payments they will get for, for the electricity they feed in, is uh, guaranteed. 
Um, so so they, they can calculate with an amount of money that they know will come in. And um, so this is also this also makes this system better in a way than, than other systems as quotas uh, that, that we also have in, in, in Europe, for example, in the UK. Um, and um, the decree, uh, there is a decrease in these payments um, so that you also have an incentive to improve e efficiency of the technologies. And this also takes into account the fact that the technology will get cheaper over time. Um, and another thing that, that is uh, uh, better than in some other systems is that it doesn't have a maximum. If you have a quota, um, then as soon as, as this level is reached, there's no uh, guarantee for, for the producer that, uh, for the price that, that he will get. So um, I don't know if this, uh, this sufficiently answers your questions. And just as a follow-up, the, the, the second question was, why don't we have one in the United States effectively? And, and, and the answer is um, <coughs> we do at the state level. California has had one in place for a number of years. Uh, however, it's, it's uh, been capped at a very low level so that the subsidy level isn't high enough. And, and um, that's, that's part of the long-term challenge with the feed-in tariff. When you look at the feed-in tariff in Germany, the subsidy levels are about 45 to 55 cents per kilowatt hour. That's a, that's a very, very high rate when we're used to paying 10 cents, 12 cents a kilowatt hour here in the United States. And so, you know, from a public perception, it's, it's, it, it is difficult to, 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 to structure a feed-in tariff like that. Not impossible. It changes a mindset, you know. Um, uh, it requires a mindset change, but it is certainly fundamentally different than anything we've done in the past. And when we look at the federal level, there's some other challenges. And the first, I think, is, is really the structure of our existing electricity law in this country. Rates are set by... Um, uh, the states, not by the federal government. And so for the federal government to mandate a certain payment um, would require a lot of restructuring of electricity law and obviously um, a huge lobbying effort. Uh, there's over 3,000 utilities in this country, as I mentioned earlier, and, and four in Germany. So the utility lobby is something that would have to be um, critical to this. And, and um, uh, as long as utilities can find a way to make money on it, they, I think they could be uh, and will be critical to, to actually getting feed-in tariffs uh, in place. But I think the other thing is, is, is simply that right now there's no good state model that we can replicate at the federal level. And this is the way it's always been in this country where, you know, states have led energy policy development and then those that work are adopted by the federal government in large part. And I think um, what's happening right now is a number of states are in the process of adopting feed-in tariffs. You will see one in California this year. It will be capped. It will be small, but it will be much more robust than what currently exists. And I think you'll find it works extremely well. It's a very elegant policy because it rewards efficiency as opposed to rewarding cost. So in the long run, it's the kind of structure you would like to see. In a, in, a, in a policy, um, but I think very difficult in the United States. And, and what Silke mentioned in, 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 uh, with respect to quota is, is very important right now in the solar industry because Spain has gone through a process of instituting a feed-in tariff and went from a very, very small solar market to being the second largest in the world very quickly, very, you know, literally overnight. And uh, what they found is that it's expensive when you, when you, when you ramp up that quickly. And the, the country is now having to float a billion euros worth of bonds in order to pay for the feed-in tariff. And it's kind of not what they expected. Um, so their, their reaction, of course, is to put a cap in place. So very quickly, what had been a literally unlimited growth opportunity for the industry, for the markets, and, and, and for carbon-free technology is hitting that cost ceiling. 
And so, again, although they have a long-term window from the expense of the policy and the time of the rebates, they're realizing that there's going to be a cap in order to maintain the cost structure. So yeah, I think as feed-in tariffs have, have become very effective in Europe, we're also seeing that um, the structure is different country by country, and that's why we'll probably have to see state-level feed-in tariffs first because we're so different state by state here in the United States. Yeah, in the back. Bob Baum, the director of the Industrial Union Council at the AFL-CIO. I'm also co-chair of the Energy Task Force. And, and more a comment rather than a question, um, I think we absolutely share the belief that there's opportunity here. One of the things that we experienced in the legislative process here is we actually were, had bills that were all about environmental policy and not so much about economic development policy, that the idea that we're going to create millions of jobs is a throwaway line. If we make, it's like the field of dreams. If we make the investments, they will come. Maybe um, the windmill, the wind turbine will be built here. It's not so sure we'll make the parts here. And I think we're really concerned with moving up the value chain and the supply chain to have a complete linkage between the construction and installation and the manufacturing of these and to get these innovative technologies back into our country greater. I know there's pressure on the solar industry and the photovoltaic manufacturers to actually take this all offshore. So we promoted language in the legislation both in the, in the purpose and in the findings and in the actual criteria that drove a domestic investment policy as part of this. We don't assume that it will come out to play that way unless we actually work towards it and talk about it. It's no mistake that Germany did what it did. They actually had an industrial policy in place to capture the technology and move it. Right? And I think as a country that's partly what we need to begin thinking far more strategically about assuming, not just assume these things will happen, but actually have an environmental economic development policy for the nation, which is actually what we tried to put into the legislation. And we need to do more of it. We need to be more thoughtful about it. How do we hook up supply chains with the best of the European manufacturers? Right now we're chasing Gamesa Investus supply chains to get them in the United States. But we should be doing that as part of our state policy of how we invest, about federal policy and how we invest. Thoughts are spot on. I, you know, when you look at the wind industry, they've had a tax credit for 14 years, but it's been on and it's been off. It has expired several times, and, and the reality is all of the U.S. manufacturers up until just several years ago uh, went out of business because they could not operate in this environment of start-and-stop policy structures. And the reality is the Danish and the Germans um, uh, are the dominant players in the wind industry. GE has bought their way in, which is fantastic. But uh, uh, we need that long-term extension to really make sure that the markets grow. Silka mentioned that you know, the U.S. is the biggest market for, for wind, which is great. And, uh, you know, but again, those tax credits expire. You know, what's going to happen next year? 85, 90% drop in the market, and so people will be out of work. So what's really critical is you provide that long-term certainty in the, in, the mar in the policy structure that supports it, both with respect to the incentives that drive demand as well as the incentives that encourage manufacturing that takes place here, as well as uh, worker uh, retraining and workforce training uh, across the board. And I think when you put those three pieces in place, you really – can create a market here in the United States that drives millions of jobs to, uh, to, to solar and wind. Just a, a quick follow on that. And my understanding is, you know, from watching in, in the United States, the solar industry, many of the, of the firms are drawn to build new manufacturing plants uh, overseas, perhaps, but often in Germany uh, rather than in, in a, a low labor cost uh, country in part because of the financial incentives, the economic development uh, structures that are put in place. 
um, that they, they create a favorable environment for uh, manufacturing as well as, as uh, installing the technology. And there's no reason that can't be a centerpiece of a, of a piece of climate legislation as well. I, I guess we, unfortunately, we've, we have, we've gone a little bit long. We'll take one more question um, and then wrap things up. Is there a, a, anyone, a reporter? Who's, who's, you are? Okay, yeah. Order hat, but uh, I'm associate editor for Third Party Watch. I'm Kerry Campbell. I'm also state chair of Virginia's Independent Green Party. Thank you guys for doing this today. You did a terrific job. Uh, our state party is the only state party in the country that has endorsed and working with T. Boone Pickens on his uh, the Texas billionaire, the oil guy, who has come out to build wind and solar power. He's on page. Uh, one of the business section there in the Washington Post today. I haven't heard you guys specifically talk about this, but aren't these just the kinds of people that we, we have to uh, partner with? And, you know, he's uh, GE, of course, owns NBC, and he was on Meet the, uh, uh, you know, Gore was on Meet the Press highlighting this on, on Sunday. Aren't these the very kinds of folks all across the political spectrum that we have to pull in? And please comment specifically on Boone's uh, plan there, what you think of it. I'm happy to jump in just a little bit. Um, you know, he talks about uh, $600 billion a year leaving the country in oil. Well, he talks about 700. We talk about 600. It's somewhere between six and 700 billion a year, depending on how you how you set the price. Um, but for a trillion dollars of investment in uh, in new wind generating capacity and another couple 200 billion, I think, in uh, transmission capacity, uh, you could uh, create. 20% of the nation's electricity. Um, that is the price of two years of oil imports. We could build a permanent inf infrastructure for uh, zero carbon uh, energy and create a massive investment in infrastructure. I think that whole notion of creating renewable energy corridors, dedicated transmission, rethinking how we invest um, is a very, very important piece of the conversation. A and what he's done by turning the conversation from one of, uh, of just focused on energy costs or sort of extracting the last few drops of oil to one of how we f invest in physical infrastructure to create a much more sustainable long-term uh, uh, energy supply and distribution system across the country. It's a very important piece of the conversation. I think it's very important also that it's coming from an oil man. Uh, it's coming from a conservative Republican. This is, does not have to be an ideological issue or a divisive issue. I think that was a real lesson uh, coming out of, out of Europe. I mentioned at the very beginning uh, the, the movement of business sort of starting to understand the investment opportunities. And, and we really should be thinking of this as long-term investments in the, the security of the country. It's exciting as, as well in, in that um, certainly echo Bracken's comments, you know, having an oil billionaire investing in renewable energy is encouraging. Um, but we've also seen high-tech billionaires investing in renewable energy, which is also extremely encouraging. But this is an election year, and this is an absolutely critical year in this country's future, and especially our energy future. You're going to see somewhere on the order of about 10 to 15 percent of the House turnover just because people have retired, died, or aren't going to get reelected. You're going to see somewhere close to 10% in the Senate turnover as well. That's a lot of new thinkers, a lot of new people who are running on energy and climate change as a platform issue uh, in their particular election. That is absolutely critical. We're also going to have a new president. And, you know, when you look at the T. Boone Pickens, um, you know, announcements, all of those things are extremely important. But remember, this guy was one of the fundamental 
uh, investors in the Swift Boat campaign in the 2004 election. His energy now is focused on clean energy. To have him increase the dialogue on clean energy in this year, this campaign year, is extremely important. He's in Washington today, and he's up on Capitol Hill saying we need to extend these tax credits. We need to do certain things to show real leadership in moving forward. What I love about it is instead of four years ago, he was splitting parties apart. He's now working in more of a bipartisan way to bring parties together on energy issues. So I'm encouraged not only by the message, but also by what he's doing to help bring uh, leadership uh, forward in Washington. Three parties, right, right, three parties. That's right, right, right. Forgot about Bernie and. Uh, so, um, we first of all, I want to thank the guests. If you have do, any closing words, or I, I guess we're we're just about out of time. So, um, I think they'd be happy to stick around a little bit and engage if there's any uh, any questions that haven't been answered. Uh, I want to thank you all for coming out and for your concern over this issue. Uh, the Center for American Progress very been very happy to work with the Heinrich Boll Foundation. Um, and thank you very much. Have a good day.